Good morning, church. It's wonderful to be with you. If you're just joining us today or visiting with us, my name is Dean, and I am absolutely honored to serve as the lead minister of this church. And I want to encourage you to hang out a little bit after. We've got a welcome center there. Give us a chance to get to know you. Uh, I also uh, am incredibly grateful to Charles. Uh, did a phenomenal job preaching last week. It was funny. Uh, I, I gently twisted his arm. We are standing out here, and I, I told him, initially we talked about maybe preaching together. I love hearing our shepherd's voices here. But I said, you know, Charles, if you preached on your own, I could spend the 25th birthday with my daughter in Lubbock. And he's, he looked at me like, what am I going to say to that? So <laughs> appreciate him doing that. And, and I love, you know, uh, uh, if you're new here, I will preach most of the time, but I will not preach all the time. That's an intentional thing. You need to hear other voices. This isn't a personality-driven church. I love doing what I do, and I, I, I love sharing that. But we have many gifted people. And again, Charles, thank you so much for modeling a heart of a shepherd for this church and a follower of Jesus. Did a beautiful, beautiful job uh, ending that series. We're beginning a, a new series uh, this week. We're going to be uh, looking at this funny little story in the Old Testament called the book of Jonah. And so if you have your Bibles or your devices, I want to go ahead and just start by reading uh, the opening chapter um, of that, or most of it. Um, it's the first scene in this odd little story in which God reveals the Lord's heart to us. Um, a lot of times, by the way, this is a common one if you grow up in any kind of church setting. This is a great VBS story. Understand, didn't we have a big life-size big fish? I'm going to be technically correct, right? Uh, so it's great. But I will say this as we get started. It's not about the fish, and it's not about Jonah. As we hear in this story... God does a lot with Jonah, but it's what can we learn about the heart of our God and who we are as a people of God uh, from this incredible story. So this is the word of the Lord from Jonah chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah got up and ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. And the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find who is responsible for this calamity. And they cast lots, and the lot fell to Jonah. So they asked him, tell us who is responsible For making all this trouble for us. What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he answered, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And this terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he'd already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. 
I know that it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land. But they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for making, taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. And they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You ever been in a situation in your life where you didn't belong? Where the you or someone that you loved and cared deeply about didn't fit in to some group that they wanted to be a part of? I remember in early high school, I played summer ball all the time in baseball, and my best friend and Ron and I went out for kind of a select baseball team, and I, it's not a big deal, I know, but I still remember the sting when I didn't make the team and Ron did. Oh, okay, he's my best friend, so some of it is a little competitiveness and all that, but honestly, so much of it was just knowing that Ron was going to have all of these experiences with this group of people, and I didn't belong there. I didn't have what it took to get into that group. But I tell you, I don't know if you've had this struggle before. I don't know if you've struggled with moments where, again, you or someone you care about doesn't fit into a group, has been told one way or another, you don't measure up. Or maybe even, as Charles testified last week, many of us will say that to ourselves. You're not good enough. You don't fit in here. I don't know where that hits you in your life, but I'm going to be honest with you. As a guy who grew up in settings like this, can I tell you that one of the places... Probably the central places that I felt that not quite belonging is actually among the people of God. Not so much uncomfortable with church, but uncomfortable with my idea of what church people and God people ought to be like, especially when I look at Scripture. And nobody really taught it this way, but somehow I heard the stories of Scripture when I was a little kid as if to say, here are the superheroes in the Bible, here are the saints in the Bible, and this is the group of the people that are part of the people of God. And something inside of me from a small age said, you don't belong there. Can I tell you, that's why I need the story of Jonah. I need this story. I need this place in Scripture. In fact, there are several ones. I'll just give you this and, and one other example. There's some stories in the Bible. I don't know about you, but I need them to be there. One totally unrelated, I think about often. There's a little story in the New Testament. It tells the story of Jesus in John chapter 11, where Jesus goes up to a place of grief. One of his dearest friends, Lazarus, has died and. Again, two of his dearest friends there, Lazarus's sisters, Mary and Martha, are grieving over it. And I just, I, I get this picture in my head. Understand if you've heard this story, if you haven't, Jesus is about to go there and raise his friend Lazarus from the dead. Right? We get that? He knows what he's going to do. But even though he knows that, when he walks into a community of people at the funeral, so to speak, and they're grieving, it says Jesus wept. I don't know about you, but I need that story in the Bible. 
I need to know when things are painful and difficult, even though God knows exactly what he's going to do with it, our God enters into our suffering and he grieves with us. It's an example of a story I need in scripture. I, I feel like, oh, okay, that, that fits more. And then I come to this one. I need the story of Jonah in the Bible. I need it. For all of those times I feel like I don't belong and I don't measure up. Aren't you glad this guy's in the Bible? <laughs> this comes from the introduction of uh, the translation known as the message. Eugene Peterson has this in the introduction of Jonah. He said, one reason that the Jonah story is so enduringly important is that Jonah is not a hero too high and mighty for us to identify with. I love this. He doesn't do anything great. So if you're waiting for the great hero of Jonah in the story, won't happen. Instead of being held up as an ideal to admire, I love this line, ready for it? We find Jonah as a companion in our ineptness. Isn't that great? I love this story being in scripture. He's a companion in all those moments when we don't measure up and we don't fit in and we don't belong. What does God do with the inept one? <laughs> By the way, a lot of people don't realize I didn't for a long time. He didn't start out that way. Did you know this is not our introduction to Jonah in the Bible? He actually started off a whole lot better than that. It's a little place in 2 Kings, chapter 14. There's like one verse that talks about him. This is in the reign of a king of Judah, the southern part of Israel, named Amaziah. And it says, King Amaziah, verse 25, was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebo Hamath to the Dead Sea. So think of Michigan to Texas, right? So from the north to south. In other words, Amaziah reigned at a time where God re-expanded the boundaries of the people of Israel. They'd lost some land, they re-expanded it. Now listen to what it says about that experience. Those boundaries expanded in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from gath Hepher. That's our introduction in the Bible to Jonah. A lot of people don't realize that. So picture this. Have you ever thought about this before? Jonah gets to give the prophetic message that everybody wants to preach and almost nobody else gets. Right? You get Jeremiah saying, oh, give in to the enemy, they're going to defeat you, oh, it's going to fall, judgment, judgment, judgment. Guess what Jonah gets to preach in his opening message? The word of the Lord came to Jonah to go tell the king, your boundaries will expand and you guys will prosper. Everybody loves to preach that message. And that's how he began. And I wonder if perhaps that's what made his calling here so much harder and how he ends up being not the great prophet preaching the expanding boundary. He becomes a companion in our ineptness. He becomes the one who is not the great model or hero. How do we get there? One way I was thinking as I was studying through this text, I'm thinking sometimes a great way to just explore the story is just to ask questions of it. So that's what I'm going to do today. Let's just ask a few questions through the story, right? Uh, the first question I want to ask is what, what did you hear? <laughs> what is it that you hear here? I want you to picture when it says the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Again, this prophet who was the boundary expanding prophet. The word of the Lord came to him. The calling of God came to him and says go and preach to that mighty city of Nineveh. Can you imagine the conversation among the prophets? The little preachers group, they all have them. 
So Jonah came up to his fellow Jewish prophets and preachers and ministry leaders, and he said, I got a word from God to go to Nineveh. Don't you think they said, he said, what? (laughs) What did you hear? What, What was this calling in this particular place? Again, especially when he was the good news prophet in the past. I, I, I promise you, part of, of, of what we started with, we're going to unpack. Like, Jonah is not a great hero in this, but I do want to start by not throwing him under the bus too quickly. Understand the calling we just heard would have been excruciatingly difficult for any Jewish person to heed. Why? We need to understand this. Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And Assyria was a brutal, tyrannical, oppressive, pagan regime. And they'd already experienced that. So please don't miss this. The word of the Lord came and sent him in the past. Go tell the king. Great. Go tell the people of God this message. Wonderful. Now it says the word of the Lord said, go preach to the people who are oppressing you. Now, you hear this story in in the book of 2 Kings, but what helped me this week just sit in it? I just sat in it. You can go to the website of the British Museum of Art, and they have there the Assyrian telling of the story of them defeating and brutalizing one of God's people's cities. It's called the Siege of Lachish. We've got images of this. The top there shows you, you obviously can't see all that, but it shows you in graphic pictures, uh, the story from the Assyrian standpoint of what we read in 2 Kings. And and as I saw this, there were certain moments that I was just taken to our Lord's suffering, even the New Testament. talks about Israel being the suffering servant in the old. In, In the first one that you see down on the bottom left, that is some people that were defeated by King Sennacherib, the Assyrian, brutal Assyrian king. Some of them were um, scourged and flogged. That sound familiar? Others in the middle, the ones that were the leaders of the rebellion, were actually impaled. They were executed on a pole, on a tree. I'm not saying these were intentional connections to Jesus, but it just made me think about that. And then some who weren't quite as important were just exiled. That's what you see on the right. Now hear me, the word of the Lord came to the prophet of God and said, go talk to these people. What would you do? Right? What would you do in a situation like this? Again, the, uh, if you want the reference for where you see the, uh, uh, the Bible's introduction to this, it's just a, a couple verses, 2 Kings 18, verse 13. But what I want to hear is that God's calling in our lives is absolutely absurd sometimes. Some of the things he calls us to do seem outrageous and crazy. So as we go into this summer season, don't think that God's taking time off. God is still speaking and he's calling. And sometimes when the word of the Lord comes into our lives, God will call us to do outrageous, difficult, seemingly impossible things. One of my favorite stories of this is, uh, is, is one of my wife's heroes of the faith and past. Her name is Corey Tenboom. A lot of you have heard her story. She wrote several books, but the main one that tells her story is called The Hiding Place. And she was part of a family that helped Jewish refugees try to escape the Nazi regime. And so her family was arrested and taken to the prison camps and the death camps of the Nazis. And her sister Betsy 
died very faithfully as a follower of Jesus in that place. And the hiding place is a lot of Corey's story about the incredible faithfulness of her sister. But one of the themes that runs all the way through the story is the theme of God's great call to forgiveness in difficult circumstances. And so one time after she was liberated and she spent, again, the rest of her life telling that story, and she was in Munich, Germany, telling the story of the forgiveness of God. When she finished, this old, balding man comes up to her and said, Ah, Fräulein, thank you so much for talking about the forgiveness of God. I needed to hear that. She instantly recognized him as one of the guards at her death camp. She froze, and everything in her, just some of you know the, the reactions of trauma and all that's going on. And he said, I have since become a follower of Jesus. I've become a Christian, and I know God has forgiven me, but I would like to hear it from you. Would you say those words to me that I am forgiven? And he stuck out his hand. She said she started fumbling in her purse because everything in her did not want to even touch him, much less say what she just preached and testified that God called her to do. If you put up there, this is the rest of the story. Eric Metaxas tells about this, but most of this is in her own words. I'm going to read it from my own text here. Oh, actually, I don't. I don't have it in here. As I stood there, I whose sins had again and again had to be forgiven... And could not forgive. You had a moment? The soldier stood there expectantly, waiting for Corey to shake his hand. I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. Standing there before the former SS man, Corey remembered that forgiveness is not an act of the will, is an act of the will, not an emotion. Jesus, help me, she prayed. I can lift my hand, I can do that much. You supply the feeling. So Corey thrust out her hand, and as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, she cried with all of my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then, but even so, I realized it was not my love. I had tried and did not have the power. It was the power of the Holy Spirit. How do you know when it's the calling of God in your life? He will call you to absurd, impossible things that will often take only the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish. What did you hear? I encourage you this summer to let the Holy Spirit ask you that question. What did you hear? Is there some inkling inside of you, some urge, some touch, something that's calling you to greatness or absurdness or, or love in an extravagant way, don't shut it down. It may be, very well be the calling of God. The second question I ask Jonah here, where are you running? Where in the world are you running? It's interesting how the text starts off. It's God's command is very specific, especially in the Hebrew. It says, get up and go. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. And what it says is right after that, Jonah does obey exactly, but backwards. <laughs> he obeys half. It says, literally in the text, God says, get up and go to Nineveh. It says he got up and went from the face of the Lord, <laughs> and he fled. So he obeyed, he just obeyed in the wrong direction. <laughs> this is where his 
ineptness begins in the story. What's interesting to me is the difficulty here, um, and some of you, we did a little touch of this when I did uh, the pastoral care team um, introduction. You've seen this, but it's phenomenal to understand the story. When he fled to Tarshish, Tarshish was the wrong thing for a couple of different reasons. First of all, it was physically the wrong way. You put this picture up. By the way, I had to work really hard to find a Bible atlas that included Tarshish actually on the map. It's so far away. Do you understand me? So it'll have Nineveh and Joppa and all that stuff, and it'll have an arrow that says over there. So this, this, is, this is the best I can do. But do you get the picture of this? God says, I want you to go up to Nineveh, over 500 miles there, and I want you to go kind of bring the word of the Lord there. He jumps on a port to Joppa and is headed 2,500 miles the wrong way. Do you, do you get that? Do you just kind of feel that? By the way, before we do anything else, is this not our story? <laughs> the word of the Lord said, I want you to go to this place, and he ran. Here's the thing that, uh, that Peterson in a book, um, the whole book that talks about this, Help me understand, I went back and dug in the commentaries and realized this. Did you know, this is fascinating to me, Tarshish is a physical place, so it's physically the wrong way, but more than a physical place, Tarshish was not just a place, it was actually an idea. And the best way to think about that is some of the language that we use even in our day, some from books, some in real life. We'll talk about utopia, like a utopian vision, that comes from the book by that name. Or we'll talk about Shangri-La. This is this great, you know, paradise place that comes from the book Lost Horizon. Or the way we'll talk about Disneyland, <laughs> right? You know, you win the Super Bowl. Where you go? I'm going to Disneyland. Or I literally have a friend in my life who was plagued for a, for a long period of time because he did not think he was a success enough until he could take his family to Disneyland. I'm not making this up. He really struggled with this. So it's just this kind of utopian vision. Do you understand this? This is fascinating to me. <clears throat> when it says he was fleeing to Tarshish, it wasn't just he was running away in a physical direction. L listen to me. He was running to some ideal he had in his mind. And isn't that what we do? The Lord says, I want you in this particular place. I want you right here. But hold on. It's better over there. And I'm convinced Jonah's not the only one that runs to Tarshish. We do it all the time. Do we not? Are there not times in our lives where I run to the Tarshish of purpose, for example? God says, I want you in this place doing this mundane thing. But I think, hold on, it's a better purpose over there. I'm going to go do that. Uh, sometimes it's a circumstance, right? Here's my circumstance. Here's my situation. But hold on, it's better over there. We know this, don't we? People will do it in families. I got guys I work with a whole lot. They cannot leave work because they think it's better there. And they're, they're literally, it's not so much they love work, they're avoiding their family. There are a lot of ways we run from those, the calling of being present in our families. But somehow we think we're a better person over there or there's a better situation somewhere else. Do you know we even do this with time? We have a utopian view of time or sometimes the opposite. I say this a lot, but the Lord taught me this a long time ago. I want to say this. A lot of us live in every time frame except for our own. You ever think about this? Some of us live in the glory days of the past or carry around the baggage of the past. It's never, mind the utopian vision of what it used to be, somewhere else is always better than here, or 
man, I'll never overcome that thing in the past. Some of us will do the opposite of the future, won't we? We'll live in the future all the time. Man, life will be better when, if I can only get to this one spot, it's all going to be right when I get there. Or we're living in dread or fear of the future. We live in every time except for right now. The Lord says, no, I'm calling you to Nineveh, not to Tarshish. Again, let's ask the Holy Spirit to tell us, where are we running to Tarshish in our lives? By the way, one of the most common places that happens is in a spiritual community. I've been part of them for a long time. I've done this for a long time. doesn't mean you don't ever leave a place. But listen, we have people that spend their lives running for the right church, running for the right spiritual community. When they get to the right perfect place. That's why often you'll hear me introduce myself to visitors and I'll say, look, if you're looking for a perfect church, keep looking. By the way, that's not just true about here. So there's no offense to us. There is no perfect church. But, but I really mean that. Again, I learned this from Eugene Peterson. What a great quote. If you put that up there. Uh, this comes from his book called Under the Unpredictable Plant. What a cool title for the book of Jonah. He said, if I succeed in getting anyone's attention... He was talking mostly about pastoral life, but this is true for the general Christian life. What I want to say is the Christian calling is not a glamorous vocation. And listen to this. Tarshish is a lie, whatever the Tarshish is, whatever the utopia is. It's a lie. There's much that's glorious in the Christian calling. But the congregation is such, whatever spiritual community you're part of, whatever family you're part of, is not glorious. Listen to this. I love this. The congregation is a Nineveh-like place. On close examination, it turns out there are no wonderful congregations. Hang around long enough, and sure enough, there are gossips that won't show up. Furnaces that malfunction, just ask Kyler about that, something will break. Sermons that misfire, you know that quite well. Disciples who quit. Praise teams that go flat, and worse, every congregation is a congregation of sinners. My favorite line is, if that weren't bad enough, they all have sinners for pastors. And we spend our lives running to Tarshish instead of hearing the word of the Lord saying, now what do I have for you right here? Why is that so important? Because where are you running in your life? Where is it that you're running again and again and again? We're in danger of missing when we run the very thing we want. Hear me, because God was showing up in that place. God was doing something in that place. And often, God's greatest gift is right where we are, but we run away from it because it's too hard or it's too scary or we don't understand it. Hear me. Sometimes the greatest gift is exactly right where you are. And we ask God, hold on, before I run... And, and listen, we are called to move places. We're called to different. Sometimes you're called to a different church or whatever the case may be. But the first question, whenever you're urged to run somewhere, to get out of something, I beg you to ask this question first. Am I moving towards a calling of God or am I doing what Jonah is doing? I'm running away from the calling I already know that is here. Uh, let me say it this way. I don't think, Jonah's a prophet. He's not dumb enough to think he can get on a boat and run from God, right? He's not stupid. He's not, listen to me, he's not running to where he thinks God can't see him or hear him. I think he's running to a place where he can't hear God anymore. And that is possible. To get to a place where I'm not hearing that urge and not hearing that calling. Don't run away until you know God is not finished with you in this particular moment. Isn't that powerful? Picture the story. 
that we get here. This is one the Lord gave me. I've said these texts a lot, but I just thought, what a question that just pops up. I just, I'm going to take you on the little train ride of this. Here's the next question. How are you sleeping? How are you sleeping? Let's think about this for a moment. <laughs> you get to this part of the story. It's comical, isn't it? Right? They're out there in the middle of the ocean and, I mean, the great sea. And, and it says, you know, the, the, the English kind of uh, mutes it a little bit. It literally says, the Lord hurled a great wind at them and a mighty storm arose. And these seasoned sailors are terrified. And guys, what is Jonah doing? He is sacked out. He went to a great sea. He's sleeping in the middle of a storm that would terrify incredibly experienced sailors. As soon as I say that, does that remind anybody of another story in the Bible? If you're brand new, don't worry about this. I'll tell you. But there's a story in the New Testament. I couldn't help reading this without thinking of a story in the New Testament. Mark chapter 4, I think it tells the story of Jesus, right? And he's out with his disciples who are seasoned fishermen. They know how to work a boat. And it says a violent and furious storm arose, and they were terrified. And they asked Jesus the same question the sailors asked Jonah, how in the world are you sleeping? And I'm just sitting here on this. I'm like, hold on. This is fascinating to me to see these stories together. I don't know if the Holy Spirit intended those to go together or not. But I can't help wondering now, maybe that's what the disciples are even thinking about. We need to chuck this guy out. Hopefully not. I don't know. But something's going on. Something's not right. How are you sleeping in the midst of this? And then it hit me. Listen, there are two different kinds of sleep, are they not? There are two different kinds of sleep in the middle of the storms of life. And Jonah's sleep is very different than Jesus' sleep. Jesus' sleep is the sleep of one who faithfully trusts that all things are in the hands of the Lord. Do you hear that? Here's the way I think about it. Like, Jesus knew he wasn't going to die there. Like, the Lord said, you're going to the cross. Like, he knew he wasn't going to die in that moment. This is a horrible analogy, but I often go to sports. And I'm just thinking about, I love watching football games when the Dallas Cowboys have already won, and I haven't seen the game yet, and I knew they won. I love it. You know what I'm talking about. Some of you do. Because I'm watching. They could be down by 20. Dak will throw another pick six. I don't care. Why? Because I know they won. Jesus sleeps in the middle of the storm because he faithfully trusts that God has it in his hands. That's not Jonah's sleep. There's another kind of sleep in the middle of the storm, and that's the one I want the Holy Spirit to convict me of. There is a sleep of callous indifference. There's a sleep of callous indifference that says, I don't care. Remember, you put the stories together. That's what they were saying too. Remember what the disciples said to Jesus? Don't you care that we drowned? Yes, he does. God's got it. This is different. Jonah didn't. He got on the boat knowing he was going the wrong way and he sleeps in the middle of the storm and I ask myself, Holy Spirit, can you wake me up in those moments when I'm sleeping, not in faithful trust of you, but I'm sleeping because I don't want to pay attention to the hurt in the lives of someone else. Isn't that a different thing? What a great question to let the Holy Spirit work on. Here's my question. How are you sleeping? How does your sleep and my sleep 
compare with Jesus's? Is it the sleep of faithful trust? Or am I willing to be aroused and, and agitated just a little bit because someone else is hurting? I think about my friend Chris. He taught me this, and I forget it all the time because I'm a talker, as you know. But I remember being in a group that Chris was leading, and somebody shared their pain in that moment. And of course, you know, a lot of them were ministers in the room and just spiritual leaders and all that kind of stuff, and everybody's ready to pounce and talk. And Chris said, can we just be silent and sit with that for a moment? It was so beautiful. So beautiful. He said, I, I'm gonna, I got an agenda, I've got a plan for this thing, but we're going to stop. I'm going to be awakened. I'm going to be upset. I'm going to sit with this for a Isn't that powerful? One of the most incredible things you can do as a follower of Jesus Christ is just to sit with somebody in their pain. Let it agitate you a little bit. And that's the question I, again, Holy Spirit worked on me this week. This, I've never thought about this in this passage before. How are you sleeping? How does that compare to Jesus? Are there some place in my life that God, you need to wake me up? A little bit more. And then the last question here. I, I love it. God, God showed up where? <laughs> God showed up where in this story? Here's a way to think about it. Go reread chapter 1 again and ask yourself this question. Where do you see God in the story? More specifically, in whom do you see God working? Uh, what people in this story show you the heart and the compassion and the character of God more than anybody else in the story? It is not the holy man. It's not the church guy. It's not the prophet. It's not the preacher. Isn't it staggering the spirituality of the sailors? All throughout the story. Now, please don't miss this. And again, isn't, isn't the Holy Spirit so creative? Where is God trying to send Jonah? To a pagan people. So what does God use when Jonah's on the boat? A pagan group of sailors. They're praying to every God all over the place or whatever. But here's the thing. When I come to this story of a storm and distress and all that, when I come to this story of God's calling and I'm looking for someone in the story to show me passionate, fervent prayer, where do you get it? It's not from the prophet. It does not say the prophet prayed. It said they prayed, they prayed, they prayed. And they woke him up to have him pray too. They prayed at the beginning, they prayed at the end, before they even had the final thing, they prayed one more time, right? Passionate prayer. By the way, who shows compassion in this story? Is it the holy man? No. Look at verse 13 again. It's fascinating. Here's what it says. They know something's going on. It's all stirred up. They do this, the thing they do in their day. They roll dice. Okay, it's this guy. Jonah admits it's this guy. They knew it was this guy. Everybody knew it was this guy. And they asked the holy man of God who hears the word of the Lord, what should we do? He says, chuck me over. What does it say they did in verse 13? What would you do if you're about to die? And dude says, it's my fault. What would you do? Sorry, man. Be blessed and fed. You're gone. <laughs> I love, don't miss this. The pagan sailors tried with all their might to row back to shore. And it was only when they couldn't do it, they said, Lord... Don't put this innocent man to our charge. Wow. That heart reminds me of someone. Isn't that glorious? The entire chapter, by the way, we're waiting for obedience. The whole chapter. Word of the Lord comes. Who is it that's going to make vows to God? Who is it going to worship God? Who's going to cry out to God? It's the salty sailors at the end of the story. By the way, don't make them like this is a 
okay, come to Yahweh moment and they're going to temple for the rest of their life. No, they probably added another one to their pantheon. But hey, they came to God. It was a seed. It was a movement in God's direction. And we get it from these guys. And I don't know about you, but I am shocked and surprised at the places that I see God's grace show up. And maybe that's part of what this whole story is going to do for us. Invite us to look and see these surprising places that we see God showing up. God shows up where? God showing up working in whom? I love it when, I mean, God always does this because it's his scripture, but sometimes God just writes it for me. (laughs) I want to thank Kent. Kent always helps me see pictures of God in bigger ways. And, and I'm ready to tell you a place where I was absolutely blown away and inspired. And you might think, okay, I'm talking about a mission trip or a Bible study. Where do you see God move in powerful ways like great worship service? No, I saw God inspire me at an ice cream social on Wednesday night. It's past Wednesday night, filled the gym, ate ice cream. I was having fun talking to one of my buddies and And Kent said, hey, I want you to come over and meet some people. That was so inspiring because I walked over to the back of the room and I saw this little circle of folks. There was a guy named Rashid and his wife, Susha, that has been served and blessed in our iHouse ministry when they first came here to this country. He's a graduate student in engineering. When they first came here, I think before they were married, he got uh, a couch, was it? Or no, a bed. He got a bed, some silverware, and some other things that he got. This is just one thing. It's not the hugely inspiring thing, but he's, you know what he's done? He's given it back. He's donated it back. Because they've gotten married. She had better silverware, so he donated silverware back. <laughs> they got a better bed. I guess he donated that back too. So, but here's what's cool to me. So we come to an ice cream social. That's not where you expect to see fireworks in the name of Jesus. And we see someone who's a graduate student that's been served in this ministry, but Rashid and Susha were the real servants. They were the ones leading the way in service. Because I got an opportunity to meet two new friends that night, too. Elia and Nadia. They also are from Russia. Rashid and Shusha are from Russia as well. And uh, they knew each other from school, I think. Elia and, uh, and, um, and, and Rashid did. And he said, you got to come meet these crazy church people. I don't think he said it that way. But he said, you need to come. He's a good group. And he invited them to the ice cream social. And I was talking to him, and I said, so how long have you been here? They said, seven days. They've been in this country. They won the lottery, literally, to come to this country. He'd been dreaming of that for seven years. Kept trying, kept trying, kept trying. Won the lottery just the right time. They'd been married. If he had won it too soon, she wouldn't have been able to come with him. So they're here in this country for the first time. But here's what inspires the fire out of me. Especially when I look at all things on the news. There was a circle there of people. And right in the middle of four Russians was our eye house minister, Tomorrow. I'm sorry. The Ukrainian welcoming into the circle of God Russian friends at an ice cream social. And who is it that made that happen? Preacher, the elder, the minister? No. It's a student who was given a bed in the name of Jesus, and he brought those people into that circle in that moment. Do you recognize that God's 
grace is absolutely global and cosmic, and there are no borders and boundaries to the grace of our God. And God will show up in breathtaking, astounding, impossible places and ways. And if God can show up in the lives and use the lives of pathetic prophets and salty sailors, Every single one of us in this room can offer our lives to God as broken as we are, as much as we feel like we don't fit, and we can be used by the one who resurrected his son, Jesus Christ. And that's our prayer, Father God. Would you receive us? We know you do. Even as I start today, I'm just reminded, God, can you, can you say to all of us who struggle with those didn't make the team kind of things inside of us, Would you remind us again that you have done all things necessary in Jesus Christ for us to belong as part of the most important community that ever could be imagined, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then, Father, would you continue to call us in astounding places and ways. And even as I say that, I shudder a little bit. It's hard for Jonah. It's hard for Corey. It's hard for others. And that's why we ask for your Holy Spirit to empower the very calling that you give. We pray that this community of Nineveh-like people like me will be used by you to bring your glory to this world. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.